We're in the middle of the book of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 22. Last week, we're in the last part of the section of the majority of the healings that happen in the book of Matthew. And you remember when we first started Matthew, it starts off with this genealogy. And it starts with the son of David. Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And here again in this chapter, we are reminded of that prophetic title. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, it says, And then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. And he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? And so, Father, as we approach your word tonight, as we reverently come, not only uh, to the privilege of knowing that we get to take communion uh, later on, but the privilege of opening your word for ourselves and, and reading it and hearing uh, your words speak to us. Lord, we're so grateful for the Gospels and especially this book of Matthew as we've been going through it, Lord. Prepare our hearts. Help us to see your prophetic power shown so clearly in the book of Matthew. And help us to take to heart, especially this time of year, knowing that so many people deny the Christ in Christmas, deny why we even celebrate Christmas. Lord, help us to have that privilege as we approach these chapters, as we approach these verses, that we would apply these things to our lives and then share them with other people that we know. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. The question that is asked, of course, here is, the, uh, could this be the son of David? And remember when we first, the very first verse, by the way, in, in the book of Matthew, that long genealogy that most of the times we skip over, but we had the privilege as we started the book of Matthew to look at all these various people in the line of Jesus Christ, the miraculous line, by the way, that could have been cut off, exterminated at multiple points within the line of Jesus. And so they ask this prophetic title, this Messiah, a messianic title, could this be the son of David? And of course, you remember that the multitudes, they, of course, were receptive to the miracles. And unfortunately, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were hard-hearted. In fact, in the very next verse here, in verse 24, it says, Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. And many of you were, that were here a couple of weeks ago, we learned the, the definition of this title here. Beelzebub means a lord of the flies. And earlier in chapter 10, we also saw uh, this title. It's used three times in the book of, of Matthew. And of course, the, the Pharisees, they were saying, we don't believe he's from God, so he must be casting out these demons by one of the lords of the demons. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts in the very next verse, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Your logic is false, Pharisee. Your logic is failed. 
Because what is he saying here? Even Satan himself is smart enough to know that he would never go against himself. And you're trying to explain away what I do in the name of the Lord. And of course, this is what it says there in the rest of that. And they would never do this with anyone else. But in verse 28 there, it says, but if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Uh, you say it's by Beelzebub, you, you say it's by uh, Satan, but I'm saying that this is the kingdom of God. In fact, in the very next chapter, we're going to see parable after parable of Jesus explaining what the kingdom of God is like. And, and what he's saying is, this is the power of prophecy being fulfilled in your very midst. People are being released from Satan himself. And this isn't the first time, of course. We saw multiple times where uh, demons were cast out from people. But look what it says there in verse 29. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first bind the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Even a person who is a thief or someone who's trying to rob a house, of course, what they're going to do is they're going to neutralize any threats first. They're going to they're going to whether make sure that it's empty, but if not, eliminate any threat. Jesus says there in verse thirty, "He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me." scatters abroad. If I'm casting out demons, if I'm against Satan, what does that mean for you? He puts it right back on the Pharisees' shoulders. These questions that they're asking him, he's telling them that they need to examine their own hearts because if he's accusing uh, Jesus, if he's accusing the Son of God, if he's accusing the Son of David, the Messiah himself, where are their hearts? compared to the Lord. They're actually dividing against God himself. They're accusing uh, God. And then he says this amazing paragraph, and many people have unfortunately taken a lot of these things out of context. This is the section where we normally quote a couple of verses and we never really read the rest of the chapter. But the point is, what Jesus is saying is, no kingdom can be divided. You, you can't go against one part of the Godhead and, and say that this person of the Godhead, whether it's Jesus or the Holy Spirit or God himself, is against any other. You, you can't say that there's a divided kingdom in heaven. And look at what he says there in verse 31. Uh, Therefore I say to you, every Sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. What is he saying about what the Pharisees are doing in that instant? He's saying you're going against the leading of the Holy Spirit. You're going against the very one for whom that loves people, the one that is the healer, the one that's the comforter, the one that's the seal. In fact, it's so powerful here in verse 32. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, 
it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. I, either in this age or in the age to come. This is scary, by the way. This is hard, weighty things that we're dealing with. In fact, salvation, it's a weighty subject because it determines where we go for eternity. And what the Pharisees were doing is they were literally gambling their eternity. They're betting on their religion. They're betting on their titles. They're betting on their status as Pharisees or Sadducees or leaders within the Jewish faith. And what Jesus is saying here is you're going against the very breath of God. Because this word spirit here, the Holy Spirit, what was the spirit all the way back in the book of Genesis that hovered over the deep. That breath that was breathed into Adam himself, the breath of God. The very word that comes forth from the mouth of God, the breath of God. And what they're denying is not just Jesus' deity, uh, but the Holy Spirit's deity as well. It's interesting to think of what we call the Trinity or triunity, God the Father and, and God the Son and, and God the Holy Spirit. And, and we know that they're all equal. We know that they're all God. We know that there's not one that's greater than an, another, but they all have various roles. You see, the Holy Spirit points glory to Jesus, and Jesus points glory to the Father. But Jesus honors Jesus Christ by sending him to this earth, and Jesus honors uh, the Holy Spirit in, in these very verses where he's saying, you can badmouth me, but if you badmouth the Holy Spirit, you better watch out. And it's a scary thing because what happens with people, and, and we'll see this in just a, a little bit here, fleshed out. But what happens when you constantly ignore the proddings or conviction of the Holy Spirit? You, if someone comes up to you and, and tells you about Jesus Christ or tells you about salvation or tells you about Christianity, and it may prick your heart and you ignore it. You ignore it. And eventually what happens if you ignore it too long? Do you feel that prompting anymore? Your heart becomes hard. It becomes callous. And unfortunately, this was the heart of the Pharisees. By the way, there, there is hope, thank God. We'll see this at the end. Verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by it fruit. How, how do you know an apple tree? Apples. How do you know a peach tree? How do you know a pistachio tree? Or lemon tree or whatever tree it is, right? You're, it's known by its fruit. Most of us, unless you're in some sort of landscaping or horticulture or something like that, we can't tell what kind of a tree it is unless we see the fruit, right? And this is what Jesus is saying here. A tree is known by its fruit. In fact, even the Bible talks about this in terms of the, the fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, the, all these fruit that you can tell a Christian by. We don't know if they know Jesus Christ, but can I look at their fruit? 
Can I look at a person's fruit? Yes. And this is what Jesus is saying. And, and what does he say to the Pharisees there in verse 34? Brood of vipers. He, he talks in loving tones to the multitudes. He talks in these compassionate words to the multitudes, those sinners, the tax collectors, and the various people that, that he associates himself with. But every time to the Pharisees, he approaches just like John the Baptist did. You a brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs, all these very harsh terms, knowing their heart. What's a brood of vipers? Snakes, yeah. They're sly. They're acting like the serpent in the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden. They're trying to deceive people. They're trying to deceive those around them. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart and the mouth speaks a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasures of his heart brings forth evil things. You know the heart of the person by what they say. You bump the cup, right? What happens? comes out, unfortunately. But I say to you that every idle word man may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. Wow. That's scary. Can you imagine a big screen in heaven showing all those things that you said in vanity or idle? Or just the things that we say. It just, if you really think about that, it'll change the way you actually talk. Is what you say worthwhile? The book of Proverbs is very clear on this, right? Multiple times throughout the book of Proverbs, it, it, it tells us to tame uh, the tongue. To, to make sure that what we say actually is worth uh, saying. It's better to be silent and, and people think these horrible things about you rather than to say something and remove all doubt, right? Look at what it says there in verse 37, for by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. There's a perfect example of this in the Old Testament. And many people have heard this story before. Uh, remember Pharaoh in the book of Exodus? Uh, Pharaoh was the king of, of Egypt, and, and he had all these slaves, the Jewish uh, nation at this time, and, and they were the ones that were the ones that built everything in the land of Egypt. And Moses comes to him and says, let my people go, right? And, and God says, I'm going to send these 10 plagues. And it's interesting if you read those 10 plagues there in, in chapter 8, 9, and 10 of the book of Exodus. In the first five plagues, it's Pharaoh that hardens his heart. In fact, at the end of every single one of the first five miracles that happen or plagues that happen, it says, then Pharaoh sent, and indeed, not even one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. He made his heart hard the first five times. And, and unfortunately, this can be just like us. 
we hear something, we hear a prompting from the Spirit, we hear the Lord telling us to do something, we, whether it's salvation or talking to someone or praying for someone, and, and eventually what happens when we reject those things, our hearts become callous, and we ignore it. And then it gets easier and easier, and this is a bad thing, by the way, it gets easier and easier to not hear the Holy Spirit's prompt. In fact, in the last five plagues that happen in the land of Egypt, it's God that solidifies, hardens the heart of Pharaoh. So much so that the very last plague, the death of every firstborn son in the land of Egypt is completely killed. And then, of course, the people are let go. In fact, in Exodus chapter 9, verse 12, and every single plague after this, plague 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Thank God that we always have a chance before we die to accept the Lord. But unfortunately, what happens so many times, we harden our heart to the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus is warning about. It, it, it can be, I'll, I'll do it tomorrow, I'll do it tomorrow, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll, I want to live for myself now, and, and then I'll choose Jesus later on, or then I'll give my life to the Lord later on. And we don't know if we even have tomorrow. We don't even know what's going to happen today or tonight. And what Jesus is saying is we have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. We have to obey the Holy Spirit now. Because if we obey the Holy Spirit now, what happens to our heart? The Lord removes that callous. He, he removes that hard heart. He gives us a, a heart that is soft and pliable and sensitive now to the Holy Spirit. It, it's just a callous that you may have. Whether it's on your feet or your fingers or some part of your body and, and you don't feel until you peel that callus off. And then what's underneath that callus? It's very sensitive, right? It's able to feel once again. And the same thing with our heart. And, the, and there, there's so many beautiful verses in the, the Old Testament that speaks about this. What Jesus is saying is the, the Pharisees are acting like these brood of vipers. They're, they're, they're against what God is saying, what Jesus is saying, that they're, they're acting in deceitful ways just to go against the Holy Spirit himself. Jesus Christ continues on there in chapter 12 of 38. And by the way, all of these sections here after the last of the miracles, the Pharisees are coming against them. They're trying to discredit Jesus. And why are they doing this? Because they've seen all these miracles. The common everyday people, the multitudes have seen these miracles. And what are the Pharisees trying to do? Discredit Jesus. And some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered there in verse 38, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, uh, Jonah, I, I love the book of Jonah. It's only four chapters. It's really quick to read. Uh, but Jonah was one of those um, prophets that hated the people he was going to. 
That this is that you would never see this on a missionary application. Do you hate the people that you're going to? Because because Jonah hated the Ninevites. In fact, if you actually read and not just a, a storybook with pictures or whatever, but if you actually read the book of Jonah, Jonah tries every way in every way to not go to Nineveh. He hated the Ninevites so much. And yet this is what Jesus is giving them as the sign, this reluctant evangelist that's going to the Ninevites. Look at what it says there. Verse 40, for as Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here because Jesus actually loves the people that he's coming to. Now, Jesus is going to give his life. For the people that he's coming to. You see what Jesus is saying here. The Ninevites. The, these Gentiles. The, the, these people that weren't even uh, Jewish. They actually repented. At one of the shortest uh, preachers. Or shorter, shortest evangelistic messages. Ever preached. And they repented. And you're not repenting. With the son of God. Standing right in your midst with prophecy being fulfilled right in your midst, with, with miracles being performed over and over again. If you just opened up your eyes and looked at the scriptures, you would see that this is the Messiah standing in your very midst and you're rejecting him. You're hardening your heart against the Son of God, against the Son of David, against the Messiah. And they're going to rise up. And, and even remember earlier in the book of Matthew, e even uh, Sodom and Gomorrah would rise up against them if they had heard those words that Jesus had preached because they would have repented. But the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these religious leaders, they are hard-hearted, stiff-necked, not wanting to hear what Jesus is saying. Verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up in judgment and, and this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Remember what was Solomon's qualification or what, what was he known for? His wisdom. What is Jesus saying here? The one that has greater wisdom than even Solomon is standing in your midst right now. Wow, what powerful words. By, by the way, the, the Queen of the South, that we see this in the book of Second Kings there in the Old Testament. Uh, when, when Solomon is, is known for his wisdom, she comes and she normally we associate this area with northern Africa, Ethiopia in that region. And, and, and remember, there, there was a guy that Philip even went to in the book of Acts. Remember the guy that was coming up from Ethiopia? He was an Ethiopian eunuch. He was in charge of the entire treasury or the entire financial system, if you will, of the Ethiopian empire at that time. And he had come up to go to the temple in Jerusalem, and then he just happens to run into, thank God for this, happens to run into Philip. And Philip shows him from the Old Testament all these things about Jesus and who he was. Again, 
reaching out to this kingdom in the northern part of Africa there. You see, the people of Nineveh, they repented, and those that don't repent have a greater sign than Jonah. And who is that? Jesus Christ himself. Verse 43, and when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest, finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. And this goes along with this whole topic. And, and normally, unfortunately, what we do is, it, it, whether it's the parables that we're going to see later on in chapter 13, or even in various places in the Gospels, we, we take these verses out of context. We really divide, unfortunately, chapters into paragraphs or into verses. And what happens is we don't really see the whole picture. What Jesus is talking about here is, first of all, this divided kingdom happens when a kingdom is divided. What happens when you go against one part of that kingdom? What happens when you harden your heart or do not listen to the instructions of the Holy Spirit? What happens when you harden your heart to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, the, those things that, we, that, that may prick our hearts and we say, I don't want to do that. I, I don't want to accept Jesus Christ right now. I, I don't want to obey God right now. And what happens to our heart? It becomes hard. And unfortunately, what is happening here, right there we saw at the very beginning of where we started tonight, this demon-possessed man. And Jesus cast out those demons. But unfortunately, if you do not fill your house up, your heart up again, your life up with something that is worthwhile, Jesus Christ, if you do not understand that Jesus Christ lives in your heart, what happens if you just have a clean house? The demon's been cast out. What happens if you, you keep it, unfortunately, empty? You, you, you don't want to have Jesus live in your heart. You don't want to follow those things of the Lord. What does it say here? And again, this is very scary. He's going to come back. You're going to find it empty, swept, and put in order. You, you just made it nice and clean for this demon. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. And unfortunately, this happens a lot with addictions. Where certain times of the year, you, you clean yourself up. And then what do we do? We gorge ourselves. Or are we overindulge? And it could be anything, unfortunately. That we put in the place of the Lord himself. And what happens, we actually go further into these addictions. As it says here, these demons. But aren't you glad that there's one stronger than the demon? That, that, that there's one who can bind the strong man. That, that there's one who can not only clean out the house, but inhabit the house and protect you. By the way, that's the job of the Holy Spirit. Because what does the Holy Spirit do? And this is why it's so important what Jesus is emphasizing here. If you deny the Holy Spirit, if you reject the Holy Spirit over and over again, you don't have your seal. You don't have your comfort. 
You don't have the one that, that speaks to you on that daily basis or that minute-by-minute basis or that hour-and-hour basis, that, that relationship that we can have with God himself. Oh, yeah, you're, you've gotten rid of that addiction or that demon or whatever it is, but you haven't filled your heart with what you need with Jesus Christ. What Jesus is saying is it can even get worse. It's scary, by the way. But who loves you so much? Who is willing to die for you? And this is the privilege that we're going to have later on tonight to be able to celebrate communion. And remember what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Providing a, a hope for us. Redeeming our very souls. Then we come to the very last part of this chapter. And again, unfortunately, many people take this out of context too. What Jesus is saying, not only with the Pharisees, not only with the multitudes are accepting his words, they're believing in Jesus Christ. They, they see the miracles happening. They, they, they are believing that this is the Messiah, the one that was uh, promised all the way back in the Old Testament. And the Pharisees, they have these hard hearts. And then we come to his family. And it's interesting, a lot of times, especially this time of year, unfortunately, what you hear, it's not about Christ and Christmas, it's family. It's fun. It's all the things that we associate with Christmas that takes away the real meaning. That beautiful song that we sang, Behold Him. Who should be our focus this time of year? And I'm not knocking, yeah, thank God for family. Thank God that we get to be with family this time of year. Thank God that there's food and fun and presents and all those things. Thank God for those things. But that should never be the emphasis. Because who do we celebrate at Christmas? It's always about Christ, right? This is the focus of Christmas. It should be the focus of Christmas. Unfortunately, we substitute these very things. Now, Jesus, of course, he loved his mom. He, he's going to love his mom even from the cross. He's going to love his brothers and his sisters, but he's making a comparison in these last few verses here of chapter 12. And what he's saying is the comparison that I have. I, I love my family. I, I love my mom. I, I love my brothers. But there are people in my life that are even greater than that. It's those that follow me. Look at what he says there in verse 46. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. Aren't you going to pay attention to your mom? Aren't you going to honor your mom? Aren't you going to speak with your brothers? And look at what Jesus says. We may see this as harsh, but if you really look at the entirety of the scriptures, what he's doing is he's prioritizing. He's understanding, he knows, and he's giving this example here, this instruction of what it means to have priorities in our life. And he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, 
Here are my mother and my brothers. This is my family. Yes, for the first 30 years of my life, I was under the, the authority of my mom. I provided for my mom as the oldest son from the very cross. He's going to make sure that his mom has someone who's going to take care of her. John, the apostle, the beloved one, he's going to say, take care of my mom. Mom, this is now your son. He made that last earthly commitment that he was responsible as the oldest son of the family, making sure his mom was taken care of. He loved his mom. But what he's saying in these verses here, the, there's a priority for the, this set amount of time. The, the disciples were his family. The disciples were his family. Look at what it says there at the very end. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister mother. Do you know that you're part of the family of God? There's a beautiful verse in John 17, 23. It says, I in them and thou in me they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst love them even as you love me. Wow. That, that God would love me, an adopted son, as he loves his only begotten son. Wow. In fact, if you read that whole chapter, it's absolutely amazing. John 17. And then we come to these parables. And again, unfortunately, what we happen here is that we segment the Bible. We, we read chapter 12, and then we, the next day we read the, the parables or something like that. And we go through the Bible in a year or in a certain time period. And so many times what we do is we segment the scriptures. But what Jesus is going to do, just like he did with the miracles, just like what he did with the instruction to the apostles, just like what he did in chapters 5 through 7 with the Beatitudes, Everyone is building upon the previous section. And what Jesus is going to do now in chapter 13 is illustrate these points with parables. He's going to explain these things in multiple ways. He, if you don't get it in this parable, if you don't understand this parable, maybe you'll understand uh, this parable. He, he's going to use multiple illustrations uh, of earthly things that we can grasp our mind around and then uh, give those illustrations. In fact, every single one of these parables that are listed here in chapter 13 and chapter 14 are all about the kingdom of heaven. Now, you've probably heard this before, but a, a parable is a principle that packs a powerful punch. Okay? It's one of those tongue twisters, if you will. A parable is an illustration from things that we see and know in our around us, and it's applied to a spiritual principle. It's something that people can can touch or taste or or smell in a physical sense, and with a spiritual meaning behind it. And every single parable has a point. Every single parable has a purpose. Every single parable has principles, if you will. And every single parable has a practical application. It's meant to be applied, okay? These aren't just fairy tales, okay? These aren't just stories. They're meant to be applied to our lives. 
Now, the interesting thing is, unfortunately, what we do with many of the parables is we put ourselves as the main character. In the parables, as we're going to find out, every single one of these is going to make sure we understand that this is all about the kingdom of heaven. The main character in every single one of these parables, and unfortunately what we do is we take these out of context and we put ourselves as the main character, but that's wrong. Jesus Christ is always the main character. And we're the object. We are not the primary character. We're the one that's being sought. We're the one that's being bought. We are the object of the affection of the one who is seeking. Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, the one that brings the kingdom of God to us, is the subject in every single one of these parables. Matthew has 22 parables. In fact, all these parables that Matthew is going to speak, there's going to be 22 of them, and some of them are going to be found in Mark and the book of Luke, and just the way that the repetition, if you will, of the various gospels. But 10 of these parables are unique to Matthew alone. Matthew, of course, being a tax collector, being an eyewitness, actually hearing all of these parables, what, what he's going to do is he's going to bring out certain parables uh, that, that he himself heard and emphasize those things. In fact, we're going to see some of them here in, in chapter 13, verse 1. And again, you've probably heard all of these parables. You've probably heard sermons on all of these parables before. But it's interesting to note in the very first one, on the same day, Jesus went out of the house sat by the sea, and great uh, multitudes were gathered together to him so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on uh, the shore. Remember when we were in chapter 5 of Matthew, we, we saw the Beatitudes, and it started out with Jesus sitting up there on a mountain on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, at the, the northern uh, edge of the Sea of Galilee. In fact, you can go there today. And you can see the Sea of Galilee, the, the hills, if you will. And, and Jesus was sitting up there, and then the multitude grew and grew. We find that in uh, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. In this case, what Jesus is doing is he's making use of the acoustics in uh, this area. He, he's using the hills, if you will, around the northern part of the Sea of Galilee as this amphitheater. And what he does is he goes out onto the Sea of Galilee, the northern part on one of the, the boats that either Peter or James or John or, or Andrew had. And he goes out in this boat, and what it acts like is, is a conductor of the sound. His words are being projected, bouncing off the water there, onto this amphitheater with these hills behind them. And the, the multitudes are out there listening without any electronic amplification, if you will. No, no microphones or earpieces or something like that. What he's doing is he's using his voice and the natural amplification of nature around him. By the way, the nature that he created too. And what he's doing is he, he, he's projecting to the multitudes these parables. And the very first one he gives is this one here. Chapter 13, verse 3, Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower 
went out to sow. Now this is interesting. Remember what we just heard earlier. Who is the subject? Who's the main character every single time? Jesus. Who's the sower? Jesus. Okay? And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched because they had no root, and they withered away. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So if Jesus Christ is the sower, if he's the main subject, what are we? the dirt? Right? We're the object. We're just dirt in this story. By the way, it's going to even get better later on in the other parables. But the understanding is here is the soil is people. The soil is people's heart. And it's how we receive the various seeds. Now, now, thank God for this. Sometimes, maybe 10 years ago, or maybe even a month ago, or maybe even yesterday, your, your heart was hard. You, you had that hard soil. But can God plow your heart? Can God, can the Holy Spirit prepare your heart? So that you're more willing to receive the word of God later on. You see in this story, and, and we see multiple places where this a parable is explained, thank God for this. But the understanding here is Jesus Christ is the sower, the seed is the word of God, and the people are the dirt, the ones that are receiving the seed. Look at what it says there in verse 10, and the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? Why are you speaking to these multitudes in parables? Why are you saying these things to the people in parables? And and Jesus is very clear about this. In fact, again, quoting from the Old Testament, he says here in verse 11, he answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Whoever has to him more will be given and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parable, because seeing, they do not see. Hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. Again, quoting from the scriptures, this is Isaiah chapter 6, by the way. Hearing, you will hear and shall not understand. Seeing, you will see and not perceive for the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. By the way, this happens right after Isaiah sees God high and lifted up. And again, just like the previous section, I hope you do remember this. I hope you do read John 17. But also, I hope you read Isaiah chapter 6 as well. 
Because Isaiah chapter 6 is one of the most amazing chapters in the entire Bible, where Isaiah comes into the presence of God and hears those cherubim saying, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come falling on his face. And then, and then that angel that comes and puts that coal on his lips and cleanses him after he has said, I, I'm a man of unclean lips amongst the people of unclean lips. I, I'm, a, I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. And then this starts his prophetic ministry, 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8 through 9, we're just going to read the verse right before what M Matthew is quoting. He says, also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Capital U.S. Now, we understand that God is one. Thank God, he, we, God the Father. We understand that, that God is one all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. What The very heart of every single prayer of the Jewish person, the Lord our God is a one. Why is he using, God is using this term in the multiple, the plural, if you will, us. Who was there? Jesus was there. The, the, the triunity was there. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit speaking to Isaiah what Jesus is saying here. I was there when this chapter was written. I was there speaking these words to Isaiah, the one that you revere, and yet you yourselves will not open up your hearts to me. Your hearts are dull. You're not opening your heart to the Holy Spirit. And again, this is so dangerous. Because what happens to these various soils? What happened when the seed would fall on that hard soil, the sidewalk, if you will, or, or the places that were stone? What would happen to those soils or to the seed that fell? It says there very clearly, and this is the privilege that we have, is we're going to be able to take communion even now. The birds came and ate the seed. You see it every single time, especially this time of year, when, when your, your lawns are mowed all the way down to the ground and the seed's put out there. What happens to your lawn? Covered in birds, right? Easy food. Or, or the, the, the soil that had uh, the thorns, or excuse me, the, the stony places, it had a very small layer of dirt, but underneath it, it was, it was hard. It would grow up very quickly. And then what would happen when the hard times come where the sun would shine down on it? It would wilt away. Or the thorny ground, what would happen to the soil? It'd get those seeds that would come up, but what would happen? It would be choked out. Or the good soil. By the way, thank God for this. There's multiple levels to this. The hundredfold, 60 and 30. Question for us now is, what is our heart like? Am I receptive to the Holy Spirit? Am I sensitive to the Holy Spirit? Or am I rejecting the Holy Spirit? The privilege that we have tonight is, uh, as we take communion, as we're going to look in, again, in the book of Matthew, Jesus instructing his own disciples is, what does my heart look like? And of course, here in this church, we don't have membership. 
we don't require that you attend a certain number of weeks to, to enjoy communion. We just ask one question. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Because if you don't, this means nothing. It's just a cracker and some juice. So I'm going to call the guys to come forward. I'll invite the worship team to come up here. As the men pass out the elements, as they pass out the cracker and the juice, I ask that you just hold those things in your hand. Because we take it corporately. We take it together. And the privilege is as you're holding those elements, the instruction is examine your heart. Examine your heart right now. Do, first of all, do I have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Do I even know Jesus Christ? And the privilege is you can know him now. You can ask the Lord into your heart even now. Say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I need you in my life right now. But there may be other things. You may have the, these various things that are hindering you from hearing the Holy Spirit or, or things that may be hindering you in your relationship to the Lord. And the Lord invites us to clean those things out of our lives. And, and you may even do that now. You, you can even take the elements home tonight if you wanted to. You don't have to take it now. Maybe there's a relationship that you have that, that is hindering your heart. And I invite you, take those things, and if the Lord's prompting your spirit, that means that your heart is sensitive, by the way. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Are you going to obey or are you going to disobey? And it's okay. You can take the elements home. The cups are plastic. Who cares? The understanding is, am, am I obeying the Holy Spirit? So just hold the elements in your hand, examine your own heart, and as the men hand these things out, the ladies are going to lead us in a time of worship. Thank you.